0: The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Christ the King. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Penny and I'm the pastor here, and uh, it is great to be with you. And I do just want to reiterate uh, one of the announcements that was made earlier. Um, you know, sometimes we're on CTK time, and so we maybe don't always hear them or whatever, but um, we do have two, we have needs for two ushers at six o'clock on Christmas Eve. Um, so if you can help in that way, uh, man, woman, teen, adult, we, uh, we could definitely benefit from you uh, being able to help usherings. Uh, Really easy. You just hand out some bulletins hand out some candles and you get to help light the candles during silent night I mean that that might be worth it right there. So uh, So don't storm me after the service Uh, uh, You can go ahead and contact Stacy in our church office or one of our deacons would be happy to talk to you about But uh, we do need two more so well this morning is the third week of Advent And this is the season uh, that I'm sure most of us know is the season when we focus our attention on the coming, on the birth and incarnation of our Lord Jesus. And in one sense, every Sunday we spend time focusing on Christ, right? If you've been with us for weeks, hopefully what you've noticed is that Jesus's name shows up in a lot of the things we do on Sundays. Right? That he's filled, his names in our songs, his, more his name is on our lips as we pray. He hopefully comes out in the sermon uh, every week. I'm pretty sure that happens. But, um, and, and so there's an appropriateness for us to, to talk about Jesus, to speak of him, to worship Him, to adore him, because Jesus is the center, not only of God's redemptive story, not just of the scriptures, but he is the center of the universe. He is the only person that we can say with integrity that the world revolves around Christ. Because it does. He is the center of the universe. He is the center of our lives. He is our life. And so it's appropriate we talk about him every week. But but it's also appropriate that we talk about him during the season of Advent. And we focus our attention on his first coming, his birth, and his incarnation. Because he is the most important person to have ever been born. The most important person who has ever lived and so this year we've been focusing our attention on prophecies made in the book of isaiah this old testament book and so if you have a bible i'd encourage you to turn to isaiah chapter 11. if you don't have a bible there are bibles in the chairs in front of you and and if you don't have a bible like you you don't have one at home or in your possession take that one it is yours we want you to have it it is our gift I say this all the time. No one's going to stop you at the door. <laughs> we, we want you to take that because the Bible is the most important word about the most important person that we could ever read of. So Isaiah chapter 11. Let's follow along. The prophet Isaiah begins. There shall come forth a shoot <clears throat> excuse me, from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and might The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the winged child shall put his hand on the adder's den. It shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word, and we come to it acknowledging that, Jesus, you are our life. There is no one more important than you. And so we pray that as we come to this passage that you would help us to see you more clearly, that we would see you with eyes that that are infatuated with our Savior, this one who has come, who has lived, who has died, who has risen again and is coming again. We pray, Lord, that we would see more of Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. So many of you know um, I have a great appreciation and joy For the hbo miniseries band of brothers i've shared with you all before how much i like it this wonderful series that's based off of the same the book by the same with the same title by stephen ambrose band of brothers it it begins it follows the 101st airborne easy company through their exploits during world war ii it begins with their training in Camp Tokoing, in Georgia. It follows them through D-Day. It chronicles their efforts at Market Garden and the Battle of the Bulge and the taking of Hitler's Eagle's Nest. It's a wonderful story. It feels like Kat and I return to it at least every other year, and our kids are getting old enough they're starting to watch it with us, and it's very fun. But, but my favorite episode in the series is an episode called Breaking Point. It's number seven. Easy Company has had a respite from the line. They've had a little bit of a rest from the fighting, from the battle. But they've been returned to the line at the Ardennes Forest in Belgium, and they're overlooking the town of Foy. It's the middle of winter. It's freezing cold. The ground is covered with snow, and across the field is the German army. They are tucked away in this little town of Foy, safe. Now as easy returns to their foxholes, they find their foxholes not empty, not waiting for them to fill them. Now the foxholes are actually filled with, with branches, with sticks, with tree limbs. And this is because the trees that surrounded them have been completely destroyed. The German artillery has been raining shells upon this area for many days. And so these trees that once stood high, that once provided cover and protection for the men below them, they were no more. They're reduced to stumps. The ground is covered with a mixture of snow and tree limbs and blood. The land is completely desolate. It shows the scars of battle. It is lifeless, cold. It's desolate. Where there once was life, there are but stumps. Where there once were trees, there are just stumps. Well, it's that setting that Isaiah 11 comes to us in. Now, in order to see that, we would have to know Isaiah 10. And in Isaiah 10, we're told that a promise that is made by God, a promise of destruction, a promise of desolation, you remember Isaiah's writing to the southern kingdom of Israel. So Israel is divided between two kingdoms, the north and the south. And the south, to whom Isaiah is prophesying, who he's ministering to, the south is being led by a king named Ahaz. And Ahaz is leading the people away. But, but to make matters worse, Syria and the northern kingdom are pressing in on the southern kingdom. And in the background, even beyond them, is the superpower of the day, Assyria. And God promises in Isaiah 10 that Assyria is coming. That Assyria is coming and that they will come with a flurry and in a day of punishment. And like the Arden forest that Easy found, the land will be laid to waste. It will be desolate and destruction will come. That's what God promises in Isaiah 10. That's what the people have to look forward to in the coming years. But that's not all that he promises. No, because out of the destruction, God promises he will preserve a remnant. And out of the destruction, he promises, there will come a shoot. From the desolation will come a shoot. That's how Isaiah 11, verse 1 begins. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A shoot will grow forth from the stump of Jesse. A stump is all that remains when a tree is cut down, right? To the naked eye, a stump is, is lifeless, right? All that's left for it to do is to rot. But out of this stump, there will be a twig. There will be a shoot. There will be life. It will come from the stump of Jesse. Now, what's interesting about this is that, that he invokes Jesse's name. Now we remember who Jesse is. Jesse is the father of David. Now now what's interesting about this is that, uh, that in all my reading of the Old Testament, and in my consulting of all the different commentaries on this passage, it seems to me that there is not a single instance in which a king in Israel is like, l- excuse me, linked to Jesse. No king is spoken of as a son of Jesse. They're spoken of as a son of David. That it's often like to David, linked to David, the kings are, like in 2 Kings 18. David is the father of the kings. And yet here, the shoot comes not from David, but Jesse. And the image is impressed upon us even deeper in verse 10, when we hear that it's not simply a shoot that comes from the stump of Jesse, but that the root of Jesse will one day come. And so we have these two images, right? We have the root and we have the shoot. And they're being attached to Jesse, and what these are getting at is there is one who is coming in the line of Jesse, in the line of David, but these images show us that the one who is coming is actually greater than Jesse, and is before Jesse, right? A root comes before the stump. That He's even before Jesse, and he is greater than Jesse, and he is greater than Jesse's greatest son, David. You see, ultimately, this language of the root of Jesse, the, the stump of Jesse, what it's getting at is the messianic promise. The shoot, the root of Jesse is the Messiah. So, what is beautiful about this picture that we're given is that in the place of the wilderness, in the place of desolation, in a place that looks like there is only destruction and it looks lifeless, there will come life. A spring is coming. That's what Isaiah is promising. A spring is coming after the cold and dark and lifeless winter. Right, we know that, that as cold as it gets, that as dark as it gets, as frozen as it gets, that, that there's life teeming below the surface. right? That there is life in the soil and all it needs is a little bit of warmth, a little bit of sun, and, and it will spring to life. And that's what Isaiah is promising. That out of the coldness, out of the desolation of this winter, spring will come. Life will spring up. That though judgment may come upon Israel, God's promise endures. His Messiah, his Christ, will come. That's what Christ means. It's not Jesus' last name. It's a title. Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. And we know he's speaking of the Messiah because of verse 2. Look, it says, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This language, the Spirit resting upon him. This is invoking language that, that would cause us to think of an, an anointing. That, that the Messiah to come, the Christ, he will be anointed. Not by water, not by oil, but by the Spirit. And when he is anointed by the Spirit, he will function like no other king has functioned before. He will be a man like Israel had never seen before. And of course, this is Jesus. This is Jesus because we know in the New Testament that when Jesus was baptized by John, we're told he came up out of the water, and what happened? The Spirit descended upon him. That is his anointing. That is when Christ is anointed as the king, as the Messiah and we know in Luke chapter 4 that Jesus he walks into the synagogue and he takes for himself the scroll and he Turns to Isaiah 61 and he applies that passage to himself and it says the spirit of the Lord is upon me Because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives in recovering sight to the blind To set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor And then he said what? This passage has been fulfilled in your midst. Jesus is saying the spirit of the Lord has come upon me, has anointed me, so that I can proclaim to the poor, that I can proclaim liberty to the oppressed, that I can proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You see, friends, in the midst of what would have looked like a barren land, a place where God's promises may have been laid to rest, God is declaring through his prophet that his promises continue. That they will not end. That out of the stump, out of desolation, comes the shoot. And out of the shoot comes fruit. You see this in verse 1. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And this fruit that he bears is the fruit of righteousness and of peace. We see the fruit of righteousness in verses 3 through 4. We read, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. He shall judge with righteousness. But did you notice how different the judgment of Jesus is than the judgment of man? See what he says? Jesus, the Messiah who comes, he will judge not by what his eyes see and not by what his ears hear. See, that's how man judges. We judge by what we see and what we hear, and we think that that's all that there is. But, but Jesus isn't deceived by appearances, and he's not moved by flattering lips. No, he sees the heart. Christ sees the heart. It reminds me of 1 Samuel 16. If you're familiar with the story of David, you're probably familiar with this chapter because it's very important to the story of David because this is the chapter where David is set apart. He is anointed as the next king to come after Saul. But before we get to David, Samuel is called by God to go to the house of Jesse. And when he goes to the house of Jesse, he's told that the sons will be presented and God will reveal to him who it is that he is to anoint, who the next king is. And so you remember what happens. Jesse comes, he brings his sons one by one, and the first one comes is Eliab, Eliab's the eldest. And Samuel, he looks at him, and what does he think? We're told in 1 Samuel 16, do you remember what he thinks? He thinks, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. And of course he thought Eliab was the Lord's anointed. He was the oldest, he was probably the tallest, probably the strongest. He looked the part of the king, especially in comparison to scrawny little David, right? But what did God say? Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The Lord looks on the heart. And that's what Christ does. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7? That on the day of judgment when Jesus returns... And he will judge with righteousness that on that day that there will be those who stand before him and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. How can he say that? I mean, they prophesied in the name of Jesus. They did miracles in his name. How, how can they be lawless? Well, to the eye of man, they looked the part. They played the part. But Jesus sees below the surface. Jesus' gaze pierces the heart so that nothing is hidden from him. And y'all, that should cause us to examine our own hearts. It should cause us not to wonder about the hearts of others. It should cause us to look at our own hearts. Maybe we can hide from one another. You know what? We can hide from one another. We're actually really good at hiding, (laughs) we are very good at hiding from one another. But you can't hide from the Lord. He knows the deepest recesses of my heart, in the darkest corners of my mind, and every word I have said in secret, and every action I've done that no one else knows. And he knows you that way too. And so it should cause us to reflect upon our own hearts. It should cause us to look at our own lives because, friends, he will judge with righteousness. That's what we're told. The wicked and the evil, they will be no more by the very word of his power. And wicked and evil, those aren't just the like murderers. Those aren't just the, the, the stealers, right? The, the thieves. No, the wicked and the evil are any who reject Christ. And so we must look at our own hearts because the fruit of Christ, the fruit of his coming, the fruit of the shoot is righteousness and he will judge with righteousness but that's not the only fruit the other fruit that he brings is the fruit of peace it's the fruit of peace that's what we see in verses 6 through 9 these familiar verses probably to many of us here where he talks about the wolf dwelling with the lamb the leopard lying down with the goat the calf and the lion the fat and calf together right the child putting their hand over the cobra's nest right and so what these are getting as peace they're getting at uh, hostile, hostile uh, communities, peoples, things actually having peace. Now, I will say, I'll acknowledge, there are three ways, three main ways to interpret these verses. So, the first way is to take it literally. That when the Messiah comes, when he returns, that, um, that the lion will literally lay down with the lamb. That they'll like coexist together and like, you know, your, your infant can go ahead and stick its hand in the cobra's nest and it'll be okay. So we can take it literally. That's one way to take it. The other way to take it is uh, spiritually. Some theologians throughout history have taken this spiritually to speak of the spiritual condition of man. That the different animals are talking about our spiritual condition. Or there's the third way to take it, and I think this is the best way. This is how I think we're supposed to take it, and that's figuratively. Now, Isaiah is speaking metaphorically, and what he's speaking about when he talks about the lion and the lamb, when he talks about the, the putting your hand over the cobra's nest, when he talks about these things, what he's giving us is an image of those things that once brought danger being replaced with safety. It's a depiction of security and peace that comes only by means of Christ. It actually reminds me of a scene in Finding Nemo. So I know I talked about Finding Nemo a couple weeks ago. I have no idea why it's coming to my mind. I haven't watched it in months, I promise. <laughs> I promise. But in Finding Nemo, you remember, there's not just uh, Marlin and Nemo and... Um, and Dory and the awesome sea turtles. There's also these three sharks. You remember the sharks? So you know what sharks do. Sharks, when they're their most sharkiest, they eat fish. Right? That's what they do. They have giant, giant razor sharp teeth, and they devour fish. And that's what they're supposed to do. That's what a shark does. And so uh, Marlin and Dory are confronted by these three sharks. And you know, Marlin is freaking out. He's losing his mind because he's sure he's dead. Because that's what sharks do. They eat fish. But these three sharks are different. Do you remember? They have a new way of life, right? They're going to pursue their relationship with the other fish of the sea in a little bit different way. And they have this motto. You remember their motto? Fish are friends, not food. Fish are friends, not food. They have to keep repeating it to themselves over and over again, right? Remember, hey, dude, fish are friends, not food. Don't eat them, right? (laughs) That's what they're saying over and over again. And what they're saying is that they used to eat them. They used to devour them. They were hostile towards them. But now, now they're friends. Now the fish don't have to worry about them being hostile, of them being dangerous, because they're friends. There's fellowship, And that's what Christ does. You see, that's what Jesus does. Under his reign, there is peace that can only come through him. There is peace where there once was hostility. Jesus brings fellowship to those who once were opposed to one another. We actually hear it. There will be no more hurt or destruction on his holy mountain. It will be filled, the earth, with the knowledge of the Lord. The nations will inquire. His resting place shall be glorious. Right, it's not just a peace for Israel. Like this is what's amazing. Have you ever noticed how much the prophets, when talking about the coming Messiah, and how much the birth narratives of Jesus focus on peace? I mean, it is everywhere. It feels like a broken record sometimes, right? Peace, peace, peace. And and y'all, that is good news. It is on the lips of Mary and is sung by the angels and is the words of the prophet. That in Christ, peace comes, and it comes not just to Israel, it comes to the world. That is the promise of Christ. That peace would extend beyond his Old Testament people, and it would extend so that the entire earth would be filled with his peace. That is what Christ has promi- That is what Isaiah promises, and that is what Christ is doing. I mean, just think about the people that Christ called to himself, his first disciples right fishermen and tax collectors zealots and women the world would have looked at this group of people and said there is no way they should be together there is no way they should be walking side by side there is no way they should be following this same leader but in christ their brothers and sisters their friends and family And we see it not just in those whom Christ calls, but we see it actually playing out in the New Testament church. Because you remember in Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says that the dividing wall of hostility that existed between Jew and Gentile, it has been destroyed by Christ so that there is no longer two people, there are no longer those who are hostile, but there is one people in Christ. That that's who the church is. That that's the promise of God. That in Christ there is peace. But we know that this peace has only come in part. Right? I mean, that's another theme that's come up again and again in these sermons. Right? The already and the not yet. That's what theologians call it. That we live in the midst of this time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. And so we know that the promises of Isaiah, though they have come and they are being fulfilled... They have come in part. And it doesn't take much examination to realize that peace is only in part, right? I mean, look at our world, look at, look at our city, look at our own hearts. And we know that peace doesn't reign yet. But we know that it will. So what are we to do until it does? How are we to live? Well, as we await, In this in-between time, we are to be ambassadors of that future day. That's what we're to be. We are to be ambassadors of that future day. We are to be people of righteousness and of peace. And we declare that to our neighbors and to our friends and to our coworkers that the peace that they long for, it comes only through Christ. And we don't just declare it, but we demonstrate it. I mean, that's what the church is to be, a people called by Christ who experienced his peace and then live with one another. Rich and poor, black and white, young and old, people united together under the peace of Christ. Friends, that's who we are. And that is what we pursue as we await his second advent. And y'all, we do so not, not because we will somehow bring that to bear, that it will come faster. We, do, we don't do it so that his peace would reign in our lives. We do it because peace has already come. We are ambassadors of that future day because the shoot of Jesse has come and his fruit is righteousness and peace. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you We thank you for our Lord Jesus, who is our Prince of Peace. He is the one who has come, and he has broken down dividing walls. He is the one who has come and brought peace between us and you, our Father, and with one another. And so we pray that you would help us to be a people of peace, to be a people who pursue righteousness, to be a people who live out what it means to be your people. And so we pray that you would equip us, because apart from your work, we would never do it. But as those who have received your grace and mercy, who know your peace, let us be ambassadors of that peace, of that mercy, of that grace, so that you, our Lord Jesus, would be exalted, you would be made much of. And we pray all this in Christ's name. And God's people said together, Amen.